This one is Death in Double Warp. I'm not really a man of science, but I'm also not one to blatantly dismiss it in favor of any kind of folk creed, superstition, and telltales. How could you, you probably say, given I'm a spaceship pilot? How can anyone who finds himself faring the vast expenses of outer space be not given into strong ties with the most fathomable things of science? Believe it or not, the kinds of us are much more like seamen back on Earth, oblivious to the marvel of floating the wooden mammoth of a liner all across the sea, only to have such a pervious mind to tales of gargantuan leviathans lurking in the blackened depths. Perhaps this is so because the closer you are to the unknown, the more you are unsettled by it. Still, sometimes we give in to science having something significant to say about what we do. Sure enough, it was science, not the fitting flight of seagulls, which gauged our probably most important rule. Never ever warp two times in a row. Untested science, though as it may be, still, if spaceships had sun visors, you want to put a sticker there saying just that. Never ever warp two times in a row. The tone was as stern as it gets usually said and reminded, while no one has ever really warped two times in a row. It isn't tested to that account, although the scientists responsible for all the math and the engineers for all the designs will tell you not to try that kind of stunt. No one really knows what will happen, much like the supposed paradox of traveling through time and meeting your future or former self. No one has ever done that, but everybody will say that it is something mightily dangerous to attempt. Hence, no pilot ever warped twice in a row since warping was possible. And that is that. Not to mention that soldiers who pilot spaceships like I do are all military, like I am. We haven't reached the age of civilian spacefaring yet, still with humanity moving steadily towards it. Hence, pushing the warp button right after leaving hyperspace would always be infringement of military code and would lead to martial law, dishonored discharge or anything of the sort. I would be bold enough to even say that this frightened people more than any scientific consequence. If we were seamen, I'm sure stories would be weaved out and about, on the friend who knew a guy who opted twice. You would hear all kinds of hocus-pocus that would have happened, and perhaps even how he returned home just to become a crazy old man on a wheelchair. But not in our midst, no. There are no stories, no speculation, no hearsay, nothing. Just the general established knowledge of not warping twice in a row. The scientists will never go much further than speculating, either. The best you could get from them was that they never tested, the numbers won't add up, the implications are too obscure and inconclusive, so to be on the safe side, just don't try it. By now you are definitely thinking that I'm about to tell you a story of when I punched that warp button, ignoring that sacred rule and of all the things which happened thereafter. Yeah, perhaps I should tell you all about that. Perhaps I should tell you of all the aggravating circumstances when which all this happened. Perhaps I should tell you about all the people who were involved in this decision as well and how they are too part of the deal. But you see, there is a problem. Spoiler alert, I am dead. How could I possibly tell you of all the events which underwent that fateful day since I'm dead? You know, maybe you walked too like I walked. You'd find my story, by some matter of crazy chance. If anyone walked in the same way as I, we did, and just before the end they know what lied ahead. I'm not sure why would I do this and what good could that possibly do to you once you warp too. I'm not thinking straight. I'm dead, how could I? 
Maybe I should warp one more time. But know this. Death in double warp is a relief. We flew a battleship. Cruiser class, middle-sized, heavily armed and medium armored. Built to be swift and destructive. The kind of equipment which would search and destroy, sometimes escort larger dreadnoughts or serve in open traverse battlefields. Such vessels are not usually fitted with a warp drive, yet ours was, for reasons of which low-ranker pilots like myself never know. I would guess that it was so because of the amount of space a warp drive takes, reasonably better used for more guns and ammo. Ships like ours would more often be hauled by dreadnoughts in massive docking bay. Whenever lightspeed jumps were required, they'd be done by the carrier vessel. After that, such ships are deployed. For some upranked reason, our ship was fitted with a warp drive to be sent to an area known as the Oron Expanse. We would receive further orders once we got to the indicated coordinates. Ours would be the only Earth vessel in the vicinity, something which would probably explain the warp drive. We were fed with images, though, captured by one of those great telescopes attached to observation ships. And the images were astounding. Expenses are so-called for being massive voids in space, completely devoid of any other object other than the black canvas of the cosmos. Still, it lies as boundary to all the things surrounding and without systems, planets, stars, nebulas in the mist, one is able to see all the magnificent surrounding forces and elements. The captain showed us the renderings in the mission room, projected in hologram afloat over the table. Our point of entry was marked in red outline, and it was like seeing an inside-out universe. Massive blackness in the middle, vast numbers of galaxies framing all around. The captain expanded the rendering to encompass the room so we could see and feel what we would be like once we got there. What our observation ports would show us. Yes, it was remarkable. Galaxies, gas clouds and nebulas all around, left, right, up and under would be surrounded by the universe in fashion to seem like outside observers. Not really there, watchers, unbeknownst. Once there, the remaining sections of our mission statement would be relayed. We rested, got prepared for the mission, manned our stations and awaited the captain's order. Funny the way things are, we weren't anything special. Our captain was not one of those massively decorated, nor our ship had any great stories. We did not have a valiant, star-striking crew, nor were we one of those trialed and tested bunch you hear about, chosen to get the job done. You can even figure that we showed as a number on the general screens, moved like pieces of a board game, in their tedious managerial work routine. Still, ours was the crew detached for that, given a medium-sized battle cruiser with a special warp drive feature. Off we went. The captain gave the order to warp, I engaged the systems, buckled up, warmed the thrusters and pressed the little red button encased in an acrylic lift-up box left of the console. We warped. Our starting location was something about a couple million light-years to the destination. At maximum warp capacity, it would take us a few dozen minutes in hyperdrive to get there. Nothing happens around the ship while on that state, so most crew members use the time for idle chatting or grabbing a snack. I wanted myself to ask a few questions to our captain, but I always need to keep an eye on the gauges to make sure the flight was running smoothly. Bad things can happen if something goes wrong in hyperspace, and that was the kind of thing we knew about. There are far more examples of that in the barrack stories we tell than one might expect or enjoy. People like us spend a lot of time in hyperspace, and as stories go on amounting themselves, the uneasiness of each one is surely off-putting. 
Regardless, only just 60 seconds before breaking overdrive, I was happy to report to captain and crew that all readings were normal into the countdown out of hyperspace. We were on schedule, and our readings indicated that we flew to the right location. With no more to add, the captain resumed communications, urging the crew's readiness and requesting the opening of comms with mission control so we could properly receive the remaining mission statements. All in good standings in terms of routine work and procedures. Following the book, some 30 seconds to destination, I started disengaging the warp systems. The crew had to buckle up and perform their own readiness details following mine, which I call out the steps. The whole thing needs to be done by no more than 15 seconds to go, and as an experienced and organized ship and crew, so we did. All we had left then was the countdown as the ship slows down to a halt, drifting from hyperspace into actually measurable X, Y and Z position. 10 seconds to go, no one really braces themselves. If a ship is on the run though, it would be so much different. Ever more so if enemy ships were in pursuit, overdriving along. People resume their idleness and trivialities at this stage. Pilots keep keen on work and attention. After the ship halts, we get our earned rest from all the racket of warp drive control. With 5 seconds to go, the keener eye glances briefly at the folds of space on the edges of the tunnelly effect. As the vessel begins its positioning as requested by the navigational inputs, and the galaxy map begins forming our actual position at the onboard charts. The scanning system begins to operate as well, as we approximate the final destination and the beams go about bouncing any and all objects around the place we land. But no one has enough time to make sense of what the screens show before we jump out of the space fold and halt right on top of the coordinates we input. Our time was up and we left warp. To complete and utter chaos. We couldn't decide what to look at. An incommensurable amount of light blows flashes as the scanners fill the radar with massive amounts of labels, some with familiar codes, many more with unknown registration IDs, the screen showed an immense number of ships filling the surrounding space all around us. There were robust battleships, immense frigates, haunting dreadnoughts, small nimble fighters. They were firing everywhere, photons, ray beams, torpedoes, charged lasers, bombardments, everything a proper battlefield should have. We were caught in the middle of a massive, disproportionate and abhorrent fray. Massively confounded, it took us some minutes to figure out what was going on, but what really snapped us out of the trance was a heart-shaking stockade of a photonic blast right after our ship. We were still all seated and buckled, no one got injured, but the blast sure put us back on the real world as the captain started to shout out orders. He wanted readings, reports. Tactical needed to assess what was going on and the overall identities of all ships around. I was asked to maneuver away from the line of fire, but lines of fire were all we had in the middle of that crazy mess. Navigation assured the captain that we were on the right location. My readings of the warp in hyperspace told the same story. We've got seemingly pushed into an unprogrammed battlefield, of which we knew nothing, nor we had orders on what to do in it. Not long after staying idly flying to avoid the overpopulation of firing, Tactical reported our system detecting a ship locking its batteries on us. Obviously enough, we were on the battlefield, eligible targets we'd become. Our Green Reaper had the make of a dreadnought, of build like we'd never seen before. No hailing was attempted, as Tactical detected the final lock and identified the gauge of the blaster which was turning at us. The first shot from it and our shields went to 20%. The dreadnought was in tactical mode, taking small fry like us down in few more than a couple shots. 
tactical advice that taking a second shot would cripple our maneuverability and we would be sitting ducks, easy targets, waiting to turn into space dust. Fifteen seconds were given. The captain asked me if we had a corridor and I hastily said yes, without thinking. He bellowed at the comms, making sure I understood that it was an order. My captain gave me an express order to warp ourselves out of that place. Tactical counted down from five, anticipating the photonic torpedo which was going to take our ship down. I've never engaged a warp drive so fast in my life as tactical went from four to three, the captain was yelling to push the drive button. As I lifted the acrylic box, I couldn't help but notice that the entire crew went silent, almost to cease all breathing. In the last two seconds, I realized and figured that we were doing a second warp in a row, the thing we were never supposed to do. Fifteen seconds were given. The captain asked me if we had a corridor, and I hastily said yes without thinking. He bellowed at the comms, making sure I understood that it was an order. My captain gave me an express order to warp ourselves out of... In the despairingly adrenaline of dear death, I forcefully pushed the button, consciously, yet ignorant of the unknown consequences of that second warp. The dreadnought fired at the nick of time, and I plunged the ship towards the corridor I told my captain we had, and in overdrive we went, escaping certain destruction in that crazy, sudden surprise battlefield. We double warped. There was no hyperspace. All the sights and surroundings were simply pitch black for a brief instant, like a pike of light announcing a blackout. Sure enough, the blackout hadn't come, and the blackened sights returned in the form of seeing again. The first thing I missed were all the lights shining behind the dials of the LED displays, shipwide. I looked outside and saw ourselves in the middle of a super-populated universe. Imagine the reversal of what we had expected before, of what it would look like being in the middle of the expanse, without the insane battle, of course. Instead of being framed by all the massive celestial objects making boundary for the emptiness of the reach, it seemed that all the galaxies and nebulas mounted on top of each other, closely around the point our ship floated on. Also, it was not hard to notice that no battle raged around us anymore. Alone we stood, as we should have been before. The stillness was unnerving, the silence of the crew was breathtaking as we all tried to make sense of our surroundings and whatever happened after the jump. As I reckoned the lack of functioning from the instruments, the awkward position of the celestial objects mounting on us, and the loss of the battlefield we had been in, my ears captured a faint yet building droning sound. My first thought was to attribute the sound to the ship's instrumentation, but they were all off. As so I thought that the lights could be sounding oddly that way. But LED lights won't hum. The engine came to my mind's eye as well, but the lack of instrumentation prevented me to take the test. Soon, I perceived the remainder of the crew perking their ears to that humming sound as well. The captain stormed through the bridge, shouting orders for the people to assess and report. Soon he noticed our perplexity and realized the persistent sound as well. Bewildered and still the only one talking, he asked himself more than anyone else what was going on. At the very exact moment, a humming sound came from a faint notion to a tall and wide drone. The pressure in our ears was beginning to annoy as our spandrels reverberated, now heavily in the wake of the surmounting noise. Still, it did not overbuild itself to any unbearable measure, while keeping forever presence in the background. We'd have it as a constant reminder of the queerness of the whole situation. The first officer was the one who noticed the source, staring at the convulsing galactic matter visible from our screen. 
He screamed in surprise, startling everyone at the bridge and pushing goosebumps along our already stunned spines. The report reached the captain and gave way to figure that the actual strange galactic pileup was producing the horrible droning sounds tribulating along the ship's fuselage. I was confounded at first. Things make noises in space indeed, but the sound won't propagate without air to be pushed. It was immensely odd that stars, galaxies and planets would produce such racket. But they moved for our bare eyes to see, as if in a distorted galactic dream, time-lapsing right in front of us. In my confusion, I barely heard the captain's order to open the outer microphones, only to visualize the technician carrying the task out. The light droning sounds turned into a major pandemonium, so loud and with such short and fast wavelengths that I could actually see my skin waving along the frequency as I vainly tried to cover my ears. The microphones were quickly disengaged, and the leaking hums didn't sound as bad as before anymore. A crew member at the far port side of the bridge had his ears bleeding and was hastily taken to the infirmary. We were blind in space, however, and no matter what immediate technical response our captain would put forth, none of us had any instrumentation to collect readings whatsoever. Not even communications were online. We drifted with the life support and lighting systems working, which at the time seemed pretty obvious since they operated in different systems and supply lines. Hampered by those circumstances, something as easy as relaying an order to the engineering so they could diagnose and repair the system shut down was a tremendous ordeal. Someone had to personally go down there and make the request in the name of the captain. It was done that way and the bridge crew waited patiently, probably rooting for them to solve the comms issue first, that way we could make faster processes and decisions. My station had nothing to report, nothing to do and nothing to add. I was certain that the captain wanted some data on the warp drive control, but without any computer functionalities, there was nothing for me to see or verify. Honestly, I was still not even sure if we actually warped, or if the dreadnought blasted us off the space and this was a crazy post-mortem dream of some kind. Perhaps the whole lack of systems and instruments made the situation ever more ethereal than it should. Apparently, he was well aware of that too, as he didn't request anything else from me than his already standing order for engineering to get things running again. In the wait, I noticed the science officer peering from his observation port out towards the sky, perhaps trying to figure out where we were. The look on his face didn't foster much hope in any terms. He looked as if confronted in his scientific knowledge, challenged in his notions of time and space, paradoxically handed over with a reality far off from the worldview he accumulated towards his PhD. He looked hopeless. If I weren't so exasperated by our strange conditions, I would have pitied him. Still waiting for the errand boy's return from engineering, I was staring hazily at my blank screens while my ears began to adjust to the omnipresent humming sound punctuated by the captain's nervous pacing around. The galaxy map crept by my side. It is usually displayed in many screens at the same time and in a big augmented reality projector right in front of the captain's chair. My station was a miniature version of the same AR map available to the captain. Still, my map shimmered to the left of my console and sprung into life while all the other systems and screens were still offline. That's when the whole thing started to make even less sense. According to the information on it, we never left the first arrival point. The XYZ coordinates were exactly the ones listed on our mission statement, the time was only a few minutes after the locked and registered arrival time, nothing of that made any proper sense. We should have at least moved along the corridor or even pushed a few thousand miles of the thruster push. Yet, 
the map showed our ship, unmistakably sitting at the very position we arrived after the first warp. No one noticed that the galaxy map popped on my console, probably due to the fact that everybody was tense expecting news from engineering. I myself, while trying to fathom what the projection showed me, realized that this was probably some engineering work, tinkering with the power relays, trying to make things work again. About to make a move and report what I was seeing to the captain, the map shimmered again and vanished. A very unsettling feeling came across my spine of being taunted by the systems, mocked by some underlying force, gloomy and sneaky, underneath the surface of reality, propped up by our bold aggression of the scientists' rules. As the oppression of that invisible force mounted over me, and my body started to reflect physical symptoms of that thing, I looked around the bridge and realized that the rest of the crew might have felt it too. My throat got sore. In an instant as I saw the captain arcing slightly while touching his forehead, probably dizzy. The science officer fell back on his chair. The tactical office pulled the textbook headache face when the first officer shook under clear-cut goosebumps down his spine. That was when the emergency lights went on in the wake of a total light system failure. I cannot begin to describe the visuals overrunning the bridge with that faint red glow of the emergency lights, making it seem that we were in constant red alert mode. The humming sound escalated a little bit more, apparently unchallenged by the lack of electromagnetic fields once emitted by the functioning light system. The ensign that the captain sent down to the engineering returned to the bridge and flustered tried to explain that no one was to be found down there. The boy obviously couldn't explain anything properly. Only his message came through. No engineers in engineering. Of course, if only that was actually what he'd seen. The captain double-questioned him, asking exactly that, and the boy denied using his head and dropping sweat around. He was not really talking about engineering. He was referring to the whole underdeck. That's when protocol hit me. As per the expressions all around, the bridge crew as well. In case of systems shutdown, each of the supporting and auxiliary decks must elect a representative to come up to the bridge and report status, especially in the case of comms failure. No one had come so far. That realization struck hard on the captain's awareness, as we all witnessed him sit down in that demeaning manner which captains sit on their chairs after the crisis of decision. He even sputtered out a swear word. Surely, if we were not so much shaken by the apparent loss of the entire crew, we would have noticed something quite bizarre taking place, eventfully inside the bridge. When the first officer rose the question, asking the heavens above what we was looking at, I was not sure if it came from a trick of the light, or if that was real in fact. Still, it seemed that the darkness of space was oozing from the crevices between the windows and ship walls. My mind instantly told me to think that they were shadows coming from the outside light boasted by the darkness inside. Then the science officer reminded us that there was no nearby light source which could produce shadows like those. That's when they dripped on the floor like some sort of liquefying goo, transforming itself from something vapor-like ethereal into a mass of gelatinous substance until it fell flat and runny on the floor like sewage water. It flew underneath chairs and consoles, flooding the bridge floor slowly, forcing us to raise our feet up, afraid of the black aspect of the liquid. Once the oozing goo suddenly stopped flowing, the air pressure inside the bridge seemed to have started to rise. Only a bit of discomfort is what it brought, nothing really enough to make us feel any worse than we already felt. Easily enough, we soon realized that the oppressive feeling we had at the beginning came from that air pressure, but since the start was more like a brief sensation, no one's really done the math only now that it was more perceptible. 
The humming sound was contrarily seemingly fading away, quite slowly it seemed, and we noticed the strange celestial movement outside changing its pace as well, going flat and dragged. Then, as if coming out of a deep trance, I saw the first officer starting to move. He shook the captain's dismay and decided it was high time to assemble a team and move about the ship to verify and assess the status of the remaining decks. The captain snapped out of it a little and chose himself, the science officer and the comms officer for the task, while the first officer would take over the bridge commanding his absence. I could only observe and comply, watching the three something leaving through the door. The air pressure increased just a tad, but my eyes started to deceive me as my vision began to get a little bit blurry. This one is Death in Double Warp. This one is Death in Double Warp. Blurry. Looking around, I saw faint translucent edges around things and people. It was not very much perceptible, but any changes in the way you see things usually get uncomfortable and dizzying. Watching the crew rubbing their eyes gave me the impression that everybody was having the same experience. Instantly, I figured that it was a symptom of the increasing air pressure, pushing your eyeballs around, most likely. Rubbing it off was trading the sensation with the anticipation of the captain's team to return, and it was a dire feeling. The whole prospect of everybody going missing in the rest of the ship was unsurmountably unnerving, more so if you imagine the cessation passing along the team down there. The bridge crew was going uneasy by the second, all the eyes fixed at the door, waiting for the captain to return. So much so, we all forgot about the weird fluid on the floor. Someone stepped on it and the splashing sound dispelled the tension as all heads turned that way. It was the tactical officer to my right. He cursed as his shoes got stained with the reddish dripping thing. Tranced, looking at it, we all stared weirdly at that as he dared not to touch or even try and clean it. The silence invited us all to hear the droning sound going ever lower, the air pressure still increasing and the outside movement of the galaxies coming to a full stop. The captain returned at that very moment, urging us all to follow the team and see the decks below. The hazy vision was growing more intense, creeping towards some sort of vertigo-like scene. Nothing more than the stain happened to the tactical officer when he stepped on the goo, so we were confident enough to step down and follow our captain. The bridge is never left alone at any point whenever a ship like ours is in service, but this was absolutely nothing close to a regular service scenario. Hence, we strolled out the bridge in wake of our captain, staggering a bit due to the strange hazy vision we were all sharing, moving a bit clumsily as well because of the increased air pressure. Across the halls, I started to see a feeling of dread building me. It was very strange, unexpected and it increased steadily as we moved along the hallway towards the elevator. The blur effect followed us wherever we went, and it was beginning to make walking quite an effort while it brought light nausea and unbalance. The elevator's move pulled some more haze upon our eyesight, and as we reached to a stop at the common room, the whole thing started to shape up into double vision. I felt like I was drunk, but without the weird foggy feeling in my brain and the discomfort in my belly. Briefly, I forgot the sensation once the elevator door stood ajar and the perspective over the massive hall was pushed upon us. Emptiness was all that was kept inside. That is, emptiness of people. Because the furnishings, objects and all the rest of things were in complete disarray. Well, I'm surely understating what I was witnessing. When you think like that, the best you imagine are desks and chairs out of position, having fallen over perhaps, spills on the floor, plants out of their vases, appliances in awkward positions, broken things, cabinet doors lying ajar. This was definitely not what I was looking at. 
Our eyes were set on a most bizarre scenery one can possibly propose. The objects were merged into one another with hideous amorphous results. Some looked like masses of matter, no longer resembling anything with any recognizable shape. Some things were fused within the walls, floor and ceiling, like a bad graphic glitch, glip clipping into one another. No. Our eyes were set on a most bizarre scenery one can possibly propose. The objects were merged into one another, with hideous amorphous results. Some looked like masses of matter, no longer resembling anything with any recognizable shape. Some things were fused within the walls, floor and ceiling, like a bad graphic glitch, clipping into one another. The life support system was fully functional, otherwise we would not be alive, but that could never explain why some of the multiform or shapeless furniture abominations hovered in the air as they would do in zero gravity. No one dared take another step into that nightmare, properly enhanced by the cryptic mood yielded by the emergency lightning. Frozen at the elevator's exit way, we all contemplated the common room in utter silence, dealing with the hazy vision and the ever-increasing air pressure. That was when the humming sound came completely into a halt. Not two seconds later, we were greeted with a brand new perturbation in our ears. With the rise of a screeching sound of something heavy being dragged across a highly adherent floor. It started very low while we looked around in reflex, as if trying to figure out where it came from. The captain was the first to peer into the room, and supporting himself on a half-table, half-counter, half-chair thing floating to his left, we noticed that the object did not move as it would in actual zero gravity. Oddities aside, we moved along and proceeded in his path, skipping over credit totem upside, sticking out of the floor and taking a ride at a sign protruding from the wall. The mess was maze-like and it got ever more hideous as we ventured inside. The screeching sound steadily increased, the haziness turning the sights even more confusing and the air pressure started to tug to one direction. Walking was getting more difficult with the whole situation. Then we started to feel whiffs of air crawling along our skin, coming from the end of the hall. That was exactly the direction where the air pressure was tugging away from, making it seem that airflow was responsible for that and its sudden rush increased the pressure. We had to struggle against that strange wind, seemingly walking against sea breeze at some coastline. Advancing a bit more, I began to notice something very odd on my crewmates. The strange sights we were having started to turn much more definite, and the hazy vision began to be like actual seeing double of everything. The blur was going away, as it did so, the most abhorrent perspectives began to unfold to everybody's horror. The double vision was not really duplicating things, but rather they were displacing parts from the whole. Looking around in sudden desperation, the wall seemed to be closing in, changing shape, becoming wavy and fluid. The mass of furnishing in the hall started to move steadily against the breeze, which was turning into a gust. The screeching sound grew louder and louder, until it became the loud bellows of a constant breaking solid matter apart, mixed with the tearing of unmistakably flesh and bone. I'm riding this alone in the bridge, seemingly the safest place in the ship. Still, apparently not for long. The gusts of air are starting to get up here, as well as the screeching, breaking and tearing sounds. I didn't think about how that screen turned on and presented to me the opportunity to write this. It doesn't matter really. As I began to pour all these words down the blur and the haze in my eyes took on the same change as before. Displacing the screen from the console, the keys from the keyboard, my nails from my fingers. As I saw the constitution of the whole ship fall apart and deformed, I couldn't help but remember once again the horrific displays I saw at the common room before sprinting towards the elevator back here. 
As the walls were changing their shapes and mingle with the rest of the surroundings, I saw clear as day the ghastly head of a crew member stuck in an expression of profound desperation cast behind the layer of metal. The captain right across me while some distance ahead was being pulled in a thousand pieces by an unrelenting and invisible force, his hands epitomizing the event, fingers being split joint by joint with a thin line of blood marrow and sinew floating in place as the gusts sucked the surrounding air. The rest of his body and the bodies of the remaining crew around suffered the same fate. I was last in line and ran away, deciding not to stick around and see the end of it. Running to the elevator, I saw more walls splitting open and revealing all kinds of body parts and morbid masses encased within, crushed and mangled by some force which displaced the ship and everything held inside in different moments in time, producing the most anti-exclusive principle of law of vision I've ever seen. Reflecting about all those things, I gave in trying to make sense of it all and simply just thought it was a better idea to write down this story. I'm not a man of science, I've said this here before, but what happens to us was so because of the double warp. Suddenly, I decided that we should be the example that our prestigious scientists do not have. I could not let this ship be lost to the vastness of space, never to be found again in this weird space-time anomaly we may have produced. Hoping for the best, and remembering my old days in the Air Force, hacking drones and evading ship systems, I jump-started navigation and thrust, plotted a course to Earth, and engaged the warp drive by setting the wiring on fire with a blaster shot. It always worked. My eyes saw again the blood of my shipmates puddling on the floor and plastered on my shirt and shoes. It started to ooze again from the walls as the fate of the bridge moved to meet the fate of the common room and supposedly the rest of the ship. The warp button flashed ready. I lifted the acrylic cover a third occasion that trip, assuming we had enough passing of time for this warp not to be the second warp of a second warp. Going for the push, my hands started to behave like the captain's hands. My tan nails were floating atop the console as it caved in around the button. The pain was reaching the unbearable as my arms joints began their detaching as well. The lack of air moved on to pushing the walls of my lungs towards one another, collapsing my chest cavity into itself, while paradoxically exposing it to the world outside. Afraid to lose my hand to the increasing vacuum, which would prevent me from hitting the warp button, and wrestling the pain in my ears brought by the incredible racket, I plunged my whole body forward and heard all my bones cracking beneath my skin, just in time to see the warp button pressed as I fainted into eternity.